Hello, friends, and welcome to Season 4, Episode 8 of So Poetry. Uh, I apologize that it's been a while since there's been an episode. Um, life has happened. Uh, I had uh, massive book publishing things that I needed to get done. Um, but I am incredibly, incredibly happy and thrilled and excited to be talking to a poet that I've known about for a long, long time, um, Maggie Royer. Um, so would you like to talk a little bit about yourself and what you're up to these days? Sure. Um, so I'm Maggie. I run a Tumblr blog. I've probably had that blog for, I don't know, since high school, probably like seven or eight years now. It's called Writings for Winter. Um, so I would post on that pretty much daily. Um, I primarily focus on poetry. I also do some prose and I've written some short stories. Um, I also run a literary journal. It's called Persephone's Daughters and um, it's a literary and arts journal for individuals who've experienced different forms of abuse. So including domestic and sexual violence, um, harassment and things like that. And I've been running that journal for probably about four or five years now. Um, I also do some photography in my spare time. So um, I try to post on my blog daily if I can, um, but I found the writing community on Tumblr to be just really, really great. Um, and I don't think that I would probably have continued writing if I didn't have that community around me. So I'm really excited to be a part of this podcast. Yeah, I, you, I actually uh, discovered you on Tumblr back when I was on Tumblr. Um, I was, I think, on the sort of periphery of the the Tumblr uh, poet community, um, but you were you were one of the ones that when I was thinking about um, guests for the podcast, you've always been near the top of my list of like I should talk to her because I've been aware of what you've been writing for a long, long time. Um, but that's wow, that's amazing that you've you're you've kept your your Tumblr going for like seven years. That's incredible. Yeah, I mean, I've kind of noticed that some of the people that I originally followed on Tumblr or had interactions with have kind of dropped off of the platform. Um, I think that a lot of writers on Tumblr kind of just eventually leave Tumblr for whatever reasons. It's really hard to keep up with posting every day. Yeah. Um, I don't really know how I've managed to kind of avoid that. Um, but it is it is difficult sometimes because a lot of the writers that I originally followed and found a lot of inspiration from just aren't on Tumblr anymore. Mm -hmm. How has your experience with Tumblr changed given uh, some of the the more recent, um, and I guess not so recent, like changes that the Tumblr creative team have have done? Like I've I haven't been on Tumblr for oh boy, um, it's been like three or four years now, but I've, I've sort of caught wind of some things that have changed and um, like, has, has that affected you or have you noticed any, any like noticeable differences in, in your engagement or your involvement with uh, other people in the community? Um, I don't think that I've noticed a huge change. I did notice that some of the people I would follow and read pretty regularly, um, they've left Tumblr because of some of those changes. Mm. Um, I think especially with the pornography ban, I've seen some people leave Tumblr because of that. Mm -hmm. um, but I guess I really don't like browse Tumblr anymore just to browse. Sometimes I'll go visit a specific blog that I originally followed several years ago just to read some of their poetry. But as far as just like scrolling through the dashboard, honestly, I just don't really do that anymore. So... I'm sure that there are pretty big changes that I'm just not aware of because I don't engage with it in that way anymore. Yeah. Hmm. Interesting. 
Um, is that is Tumblr like is your Tumblr your sort of main outlet? Like, do you do you utilize that as if it was your your sort of like personal um, like website? Yeah, exactly. Um, I actually have a personal website outside of Tumblr. Um, I've never even tried to make one. <laughs> I don't even have my own journal. When I first started writing, I had like an actual physical journal that I would write in, and I filled about one journal up completely. And then I don't even remember how I found out about Tumblr, but I joined it probably within a couple months of starting to write. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, wow. Yeah. Um, it was really early on. And honestly, outside of Tumblr, I don't really have another platform that I use this consistently. Wow. So do you, like, when you write now, or I guess over the years that you've, that you've been writing, is it primarily, like, do you, do you write primarily on, like, a laptop or an electronic device? Or do you still, like, handwrite things and then transfer it over? That's something that I've kind of been grappling with. Um, I never had really like a journal at all. When I was younger, I would start trying to journal. For whatever reason, I just found it tedious. Mm-hmm. Like it was difficult for me to keep up with it. And I just, it was hard for me to write things that I felt like I already knew. Like, why do I have to write down what I'm already aware of? Um, so what I do is I typically just write out type out my poems, I guess, on Google Docs, and then I transfer them over to Tumblr. Hmm. Um, And I have, like, probably, like, five to ten notebooks, which I should be using, but I I can't get myself into um, that way of writing, writing out what I'm feeling physically. Mm -hmm. Tried to start journaling again. Um, I found a journal that was actually created by a yoga instructor and she has a lot of prompts in the journal. So I found that helpful, but I really just find that actually typing out my work works a lot better for me. Interesting. I, I, I feel like you and I have probably had, or basically based on what you've just said, I feel like you and I have had a very similar relationship with, um, journaling because I have tried same thing. Well, I mean, it's a similar relationship with me to running that I've always wanted to be a runner but I just can't do it. And I've always wanted to be a journaler and I just, I can't, it, I agree with you that there's a, there's a level of tedium and a level of like, it, yeah, that if, if I have, if these are things that I'm already, I guess it's like, I, I typically don't write as, as a form of discovery. Um, that usually happens before and then the writing is a, is a product afterwards. So I'm, I'm, 100% on board with you that you're like, why would I write down things that I already know? You know, like that feels like a kind of a waste of time and a waste of space in a journal. Um, hmm. Yeah. I think that sometimes when I'm writing, like if I were actually writing with a pen, you know, in a journal, I feel like the amount of time it takes me to actually physically write something out is time that I lose to other ideas. Oh, um, interesting. So like when I'm writing, I'm constantly thinking of ideas in my head and I feel like it takes me so long to write them out that other ideas that are already bubbling up just kind of disappear by the time I'm finished writing. So to me, when I'm just typing out my work, it really is a time saver. And I find that I don't forget a lot of the ideas that are kind of organically coming up throughout the process. Wow, that's really interesting. I I never, I don't know if I ever would have considered that, that, the I guess the efficiency of typing is something that can that's beneficial in the 
like the creative process and, and getting an idea out that it's potentially quicker to type it um, or even like arrange it or, you know, like format it or do something, whatever it is you want to do with it. Like you have that sort of the entire toolbox at your fingertips versus when you're writing, you know, like it's, it is, it's a much more uh, physical process, I guess, or much more uh, protracted physical process. Um, hmm, it's really interesting. I um, I have found that so I, I typically write my poems first by hand, and then I I transfer them to like a, a Google Doc or something, and then I do most of my editing on like a printed sheet or in on my computer. But there have been a couple of poems that I've I've written that have been generated uh, like on in in a, on a like a Word document or a Google Doc or something like that, and. It is a very, very different process for me of writing on the like first on the computer versus first by hand. Um, but I don't, I haven't done it enough to really get a sense of like what's different. I just know that it feels different, and I usually produces very different feeling and sort of looking poems, um, which is interesting. That you know that I, I don't know. It's just, it's a, it's a curious thing. Whenever it happens, it's always like, oh, this is a weird. I forgot that this is what happens when I, I initially write a poem on a computer. Right, yeah, it's a very different process. And I find that when I write in a notebook, I actually edit less versus when I write on Google Docs, for example, because I don't, I physically don't have as much space to edit. I mean, I can cross things out, but there just really isn't that much room there. Right, um, yeah. Wow. Huh. Yeah. So it's interesting, yeah. I, I, I feel like I take. I feel like poems that I write by hand usually take a lot longer to compose than poems that I write when I'm um, on the computer. Like I, I tend to, I tend to do a lot of editing in the process and I notice that I can get, um, that happens to me or I can get caught up in, in process editing when I'm writing by hand more so than I'm when I'm on the computer. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've kind of, struggled with that just editing in general like a lot of people have asked me do you edit your work and a lot of times I say no um I mean other than like yeah I go back and I read through reread through all my poems and just see if there are any spelling or grammar mistakes but for some reason I find it really rare to write a poem and then just like sit with it and you know, go through several different versions of it. For me, that just like has always felt inauthentic. Um, and I know editing is obviously very critical, but for some reason, I just don't, I don't do that as much in general. Um, and I think that's something that I need to work on and I struggle with. Um, I also, I haven't, I've taken obviously writing classes and I took English classes in high school and that's kind of what sparked my interest in writing. And I took a few poetry classes in high school, um, but I just never really connected with editing as much as other people do. Like I wouldn't sit there and write out like five different drafts of my work. It's just something that I don't, I just can't do for whatever reason. Yeah, that's, I'm, um, I'm, in, I'm in a similar boat with that too. I, um, when I revise my poems, they tend to, they don't, uh, they don't typically change form or like substance drastically like there, there are some poet friends and some other writer friends that I know that like they'll they'll have a draft and you know pr bring it to our writing group and then a couple of months later we'll have another draft to a, a revision of it and it looks 
completely different. There might be a line or two between the two of them that's the same. Um, but there was a um, there was an article that was written about Rita Dove. I think it was Rita Dove. Um, and the article sort of like tracked her revision process of a particular poem of hers. And it was through reading that article that my my view of and my relationship with revision changed pretty drastically. Because um, for me, uh, throughout, I guess most of high school and uh, pretty much all of undergrad, like my, I viewed revision and editing as a very sort of prescriptive, um, like almost in terms of like a doctor that diagnosing what is wrong with the poem and then going in and like fixing it. Um, and reading this, this article, um, I realized that revision can be a much more quiet and more intimate process. And that it, up until that point, I was thinking, it's like, oh, if there's a line or there's a stanza or there's a section of a poem that doesn't work, I have to just cut it and get rid of it versus like, oh, this is great. You know, this is, this is a fantastic line. This is a great stanza. It just doesn't work for this poem. So you just extract it and put it someplace else, you know, keep it. And there's probably something that will grow up out of that at some point. But, you know, it's like the, the work that you do, at least for, as, as far as I understand it, the work that you do for revision is like moving yourself enough out of the way to allow the poem to kind of be what it wants to be. And if you can, if you can get there on a first draft or really early in the process, that is absolutely fantastic. Um, I feel like that would, that will save you probably a lot of time and a lot of headaches and a lot of anxiety going going forward so you're not you know like there there have been a lot of poems that i feel like i've gotten close to agonizing about um in that they become too much in my head and too much of a like a mental gymnastics of how to make it work um on the, there are other poems that i've written that like the, the it, it's on the page and i might change a word or two but that's it um and those are relatively rare occurrences but there's so much there's such a weight that feels like it's lifted when I get to the point when I'm like, okay, this is done. And this is done way earlier than other poems are done. And now I can move on to writing something else. Right. I mean, I think part of that um, with Tumblr is that, you know, like you have people online immediately. If you post a piece on Tumblr, people are immediately going to read it. And so I feel like sometimes with Tumblr, there's kind of like that constant pressure to produce things right away that people can immediately read. Um, and so I just, I wonder if sometimes my reluctance to edit or my discomfort with editing is related to that, that if I spend so much time fixing this piece, like you said, or I look at it from kind of this diagnostic perspective, like you mentioned, that's less time that my readers have to view the work, which now as I'm saying it, that's kind of <laughs> like, I guess that's a pretty unhealthy way to look at writing. Um, I also find what you mentioned about extracting different lines and moving them around to be really interesting because that's something that I've started to try to do where I've taken, I've actually gone back through my archives on Tumblr and I've found certain poems that I personally don't think are good, but some of the lines within them I think are good. And I've taken those lines out and actually inserted them into new poems. Um, and that's been kind of like editing in and of itself. Um, and so I found that to be a way where I can basically discard the rest of a piece that I don't find useful, but still take out the pieces that I really resonate with. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think that the, 
the way that I sort of that I've gotten into revising now and the way that I sort of handle my poems is that like I'm I've been a a writer of haiku for a long long time that's actually the reason that I started my tumblr was just a, an avenue to do like a, a haiku a day because I was I was I was real into it for a, a long time and now I'm sort of like I feel like I may have been my bad well I feel like I have sort of a, a healthier relationship with now but anyway um with my through my work with haiku um in getting sort of like the the elements or the not the elements but the essential aspects or qualities of a of a thing or a poem or whatever to present that's the sort of the relationship i have now with revision that i am i'm almost ruthless to the point of if there's a word or a line or something that is doing the work of something else in the piece and it's doing the work less or there is another part that's like you know it says the same thing but it says it better the image is stronger that previous line it's out of there it's just like it's cut it's deleted it's gone um because i want i want my pieces to be um maybe not on fire all the way through but at least every everything every stanza every word every moment in there should at least serve like a function to to push the poem where it, where it needs or wants to be um Right. Yeah. That reminds me of something that one of my poetry professors in college talked about. He talked about that same thing that every portion of a piece has to have its own purpose. And he introduced this really interesting model or philosophy of poetry. I can't even remember what it's called, but it's something like object philosophy. Um, but it's basically like where he viewed all poems as specific objects that you um, that you interacted with and each piece of the object had its own function and its own purpose. And so rather than viewing poems as just things that you've written on a page, he actually viewed them as objects that like a physical object, like if you were seeing, um, I don't know, like an orb in front of you, that would be a poem. And so he had this really interesting way of interacting with poems that I didn't necessarily connect with at the time. Um, and I've heard a lot of people say that the first line and the last line of a poem are the most important. But for him, he really tried us, tried to get us to focus on the fact that every single line of a poem is just as critical as the first part and the ending. Yeah. Oh, I yeah yeah I I would I would agree with that because I feel like one of the things that I've I feel like I've I've noticed with the main difference between poetry and prose writing. Um, specifically prose fiction, uh, is that with prose, like if you're telling a story, there's sometimes and you need a paragraph that's just expository. It's just like you have to set a scene, you have to get vital information out, or, you know, just like just descriptions of stuff, which help build the world and help color things. But like if you don't necessarily catch that somebody's coat is, you know, blue, unless that has a major meaning or major ramification in the story itself you know it's like that's something you can kind of skim and you're not really going to miss the the major aspects or the major movements of whatever piece you're reading and i feel like with poetry you don't really have the luxury of you know hundreds potentially hundreds and hundreds of pages to uh sort of envelop a reader or catch their attention or sort of build the world for them it's like you have you know you have like a page you have like 
a handful of stanzas to to convey what you want to convey to a reader and like if they're not i feel like if you, if they're not with you the all the way through the poem there's a um there's less of a goodwill or less of a willingness to kind of stick it out you know right yeah and i remember i think that distinction that you draw between pose and poetry is really interesting um because sometimes i've had readers ask me um, about certain lines in my poems and they ask what does that mean or they look at like certain colors in my poems and they ask if those mean anything um and I kind of have to think about well I was writing the poem from my perspective and I didn't necessarily think about um, how the reader might view that mm -hmm. um like when we were when I was in high school English class we read The Great Gatsby and one of our assignments was to look at different colors throughout the book. Um, and we were assigned different colors like yellow, brown, green, red, orange. And we had to go through the book and kind of figure out what did each of these colors mean within the book? Like did the color yellow have a particular meaning? And that to me was interesting because the only color that I thought had any meaning, meaning was green because mm -hmm. green is the light in Great Gatsby. And so, I kind of came away from that class assuming that like every single thing you write, um, whether it's prose or poetry has to have a very specific meaning. Um, and that's, again, that's something that I've grappled with as well. Like if we're using metaphors or if we're using specific motifs, do they actually have to have any meaning or can they have, um, are they just there to be pretty, I guess? Mm. Yeah. I, Hmm. I feel like, so in, um, in some of the, the sort of after classes when I was, when I was going through my MFA program, um, I would, I would talk, there was a, a friend of mine who is a, a nonfiction writer and a, and a poet. He does like creative nonfiction pieces and he, and memoirs and stuff like that. Um, and we had very long conversations about like the sort of on the spectrum of, um, like prose fiction and poetry sort of like where does creative nonfiction fit into that category? Cause it's, it's prose obviously, but it feels like it's, it's more in theming and sort of structure. It's closer associated with poetry and sort of how it, how it works. And so what the sort of what we came across or came up with was that with, with prose specifically fiction, like you're telling a story and because you were telling a story, usually um, there are certain, elements or certain things that are necessary in the conveying of a story that sort of need to be there, you know, like plot characters, um, a setting, you know, like there's like stories or things that's like this happened and then this happened and then this happened and, you know, until you reach to the, the end. And there's experimental writers that, that push and mush those boundaries. Um, but I feel like with poetry, unless you're doing like a narrative poem, you're not really telling a story. You're sort of conveying an experience or at least in, in my case with the poetry that I write and the poetry that I'm super, that I, I gravitate to a lot. Um, it's more sort of like emotional transference. Like you, you experienced the thing and you felt something and you're trying to get the reader to feel that same thing that you felt. Um, and I feel like, with creative nonfiction, like you are telling a story, like you are, you're telling someone a story, but the sort of basis of that is to not tell them what happens next, but to sort of convey the emotional qualities of that. So in that way, 
uh, memoir can be a lot more elliptical. It's like it doesn't have to be sort of a, a, a straightforward plot, even if it's it bounces back and forth in time. But it can be like thematically driven, and the the way that you write it and how the how the writing is is structured can be in support of like these are the themes that I'm I'm trying to convey. So it can be a lot more like mosaic or a lot more stream of consciousness or a lot more segmented, and then the like montage sort of the the, the totality of those segments give you the sort of overarching feeling. Um, and I think poetry, one of the things that I hate the most, and it, it, I'm glad that you, you sort of hit on this, was that like if I give a poem to someone to read um, or I'm with someone and we're talking about poetry or something, you know, a poem comes up and they, they question, it's like, well, what does this mean? Like, what's, you know, like, what's the point? And it's like, that's not, at least in, in my experience or, or how I view poet, my, my personal view of poetry, it's like, that's not, that's not the, the, the reason that poetry exists. It's not to, it's not, it's like things in poems don't necessarily, I don't think that everything in a, in a poem has to have a particular meaning behind it, but I think it, there needs to be a reason or a purpose for it. Kind of like we were talking about before that like the images or the, the, whatever, like the lines in a poem should all be there to kind of like, they, there's a reason that they should all be there. Um, but I mean, I don't know. There are times it's like I write images it's like, I, you know, I don't know what they mean. They mean what they mean. You know, that's, you know, it's like the, that's the beauty of metaphor, that things become other things, um, you know, but. Yeah, I mean, I find myself writing a lot of lines sometimes that I don't, I don't know the meaning. And so when someone else asks me, what does that, what does this mean? I genuinely have no idea, which I think can be frustrating but at the same time it's like i want that person to come away with their own meaning oh right yeah right and, yeah and um, I, th I think that um well that was something else that there's a um i think it's called there's like a theory of of literary criticism and i want to say it's called i think it's close reading um or the, the whole deal with like the death of the author and that there's not one inherent like one particular inherent secret meaning of anything that you know it's like it, as long as there's, as long as there's evidence to support your argument that you can find in the work itself, like any reading that you have of a piece is is a valid reading, um, mm -hmm. and I think that especially with poetry that definitely comes into play. That you know it's like, if I'm, if I'm writing to make you feel a thing, then it doesn't necessarily, like the thing doesn't necessarily have to have a meaning. It's like if it makes you feel a thing, that's that I did my job. Um, which I feel like you can get with like sound poetry or language poetry that has, it's like, it's, it feels almost nonsensical um, because it's words that are being words or lines that are being generated because of how individual units of those words sound when they're put next to each other. And it's through the, through the reading of that and through the sounds that are being created, you sort of get the, the feeling or what, you know, like the, the energy or the essence of the piece. And like, that's the point, um, which I think is probably frustrates a lot of people because there's not, I don't, I feel like poetry is not really taught um, to the general public is like, this is a thing that like, you're not, to, you're not necessarily supposed to like dissect or figure out a riddle. It's like, that's, you know, there's, you just like read it. And if it makes, it's like, what does it make you feel? What does it make you think about? What does it make you connect to? And like, that's, um, you know, like that's that's the work that the poem does. It's you know, it's not like the it's not like a, a puzzle box that you have to sort of, that you have to 
fiddle around with and figure out. It's just like, it's like a sunset. It makes you feel a thing. Or maybe not. Maybe it doesn't make you feel a thing. But, you know, it's like that's also a valid response. There's a lot of poems that I've read that have not made me feel stuff. Um, which, you know, I, I don't <laughs> Yeah, I remember in high school we would do close reading, like you mentioned, and we would sit with a single poem and we would spend like three class periods just going line by line and having discussions about what each line meant. And it just felt like, why are we spending all of our time on this? Like we could have read three poems <laughs> instead of just focusing on one particular poem. And I don't, like I mentioned earlier, I don't think that poets themselves actually always know what their writing means. Um, to me, the, the hallmark of a good poem is when I come away from the poem feeling it's something. It's not that I come away from the poem understanding something, it's that I've felt something. I don't necessarily have to recognize every single line and what it meant, but I felt something. Even if I couldn't describe what that feeling was or why I felt it, if I felt something at all, whether it was anger or excitement or jealousy, that to me is the hallmark of a good poem. Oh, I, I 100% agree with you on that point. Um, yeah, I, it's like, oh, I had an image when you were describing that and I totally lost it. Um, fuck. Yeah, that like the, the, cause there are, I don't, I don't know if this, this happens with you um, when you write, but there are times that like, I, there's, a, there's a word that I choose because it feels like it fits. And that's really, you know, the, oh, that, that's, that was the, the, the thing that I wanted to mention. It's like, it's a much more in, sort of intuitive relationship with poetry than like an analytic or critical relationship with poetry. That's like, it's like, even if you don't, even if you don't know exactly what it means, it feels correct. Like there've been some, um, I feel like Mary Oliver or De like Ann Carson 100% will have lines or we'll have ways to describe things. I'm like, I have no idea what that means, but it's correct. Like that is that is the truth of whatever it is that she's describing. It's like, that's that's it. She nailed it. She got it. It's like, I, I have no idea why she chose the words that she did in this particular order to make this image, but like she fucking nailed it. Um, and, you know, like I, I, to the greater point, I, I'm in total agreement that like a, a poem, I view a poem as a successful poem, at least for me personally, if it, if it hits me somewhere very deeply and like sticks with me, maybe not like lines or images, but just the, like the, the feeling and the experience of reading the poem and sort of where you wind up, like that stays with you. Um, yeah. And I, I feel like when I think of um, classical poetry versus modern poetry, um, the poets that I've read, the poetry that I've read from modern poets, often that sticks with me a lot more, even though I feel like sometimes those are a lot harder to kind of pick apart. Um, I don't know, it's just been interesting throughout um, my educational experience that we would always be told to read a lot of classical literature or we would read like the great Gatsby or my Antonia um, or Jane Austen. And those writings just would not resonate with me as much as someone like um, Sharon Olds does. And so I just feel like sometimes our insistence on going back to 
classical poetry versus modern poetry sometimes hinders us because what I what I read from poets writing nowadays just it sticks with me much longer than anything that I ever read from the great Gatsby for example oh yeah yeah I just wish that if I could go back to my high school and ask them to kind of integrate more of this modern poetry I would because I think there's kind of this conflation with if the poetry or the prose is classical, then it's automatically good and it automatically connects with people. And I never really felt that. Yeah, that 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 it automatically has a reason to be in the sort of quote unquote canon of 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 the literature or, you know, specifically poetry that you should know about. Capital you should know about. Um, yeah, I think that that's a bunch of bullshit. Um, <laughs> I think that it's I think that it's important to get a certain context like it, especially in to see the development of poetry, you know, going from like the, um, like the restorationists with the very like very logic heavy poetry, and then the romantics like Wordsworth and Coleridge, writing in response to them, um, you know, that that focus much more on emotion, but it's still very like, it feels very very rigid, um, and then you have someone like Whitman coming along doing like fairly modern sounding poetry that's just it's like i'm gonna talk about this thing oh look at this grass you know whatever it's i'm you're gonna come on a walk with me and that's gonna be the poetry um to kind of see where you know like it's interesting to sort of track the how things have developed so you can get sort of a, a general context of like oh these are you know sometimes things happen in response to other things um but i i agree with you that there's a um I don't know, almost like a closing off or that the, the literature that is held up is, is classical and worthy of being known um, leaves out a lot of voices. Um, mm-hmm. And I feel like poetry nowadays, um, like there are so many, there's so much attention that is give, being given to a, a wide diversity of writers. And I think that that is... Um, like it's that's the only there's can be really only good that comes from that because you know you're not just reading a bunch of old white men, um, you know, writing very stuffy, very academic sounding uh, poetry. You're re- it's like it, the the world the the world of poetry has been broken open and there's been um, a lot of probably not as enough as it as there should be, but a lot of deserved attention being given to you know like women writers and writers of color or you know like lgbtq plus writers and getting their voices and their experiences out into the mix of all these other voices and experiences and and the the sort of like i don't know i feel like with 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 modern writing there's a sort of a freedom or allowance that you can kind of write about anything you can write about anything in kind of whatever way you want to write about it and i think that 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 level of freedom gives um gives a really wide berth to a lot of, or a lot of really fertile ground to a lot of very unique and individual voices to like, to pop up and kind of find their, find their space and find their niche that, you know, it's like not every, everything doesn't have to be like Elliot or Wordsworth or fucking, I don't know, Frost. Like who, who gives a shit about that? Just shut up, you know? Yeah. And even just the way that certain modern poets write, like you would not have seen anything like that in classical poetry. I went to a reading by Natalie Diaz, who's a Mojave poet. Um, 
two days ago and she had like her poems were just filled with curse words and they were also filled with Spanish. Um, she interspersed a lot of her poetry with Spanish and English and she wrote poems about just such a wide variety of subjects. Like one of her poems was focused entirely on basketball and another poem was focused entirely on Halloween. And then she had an entire poem just only about an apple. Um, and so like those things wouldn't have been considered classical or, I mean, we wouldn't see poets swearing all the time in their poetry um, and classical work, but it, it still works. It might not make sense, but it still works. Um, and the fact that she had multiple identities, like her father is Spanish, she's Native American, she also speaks English, um, she's a language preservationist, all of those identities pulled together, that's not something that you would see with, like you said, white men, for example, all these old white men. So right. I think um, this diversity of experience, this really gives us a whole lot more. Yeah, th yeah, yeah, I, yes. Or the fact that, you know, like, Joy Harjo is the, is the poet laureate. It's like, that's, mm -hmm. that's, you know, like, there's an, an, an uh, indigenous woman who is now the poet laureate of the United States. And just that, like, she has lived a very particular and unique, I mean, I think that there, there are people who, like, uh, indigenous people born in the past 100 years of the, in the U.S., all have lived a it's like there's there's a sort of um you uh common experience that they've all had but as far as like uh poet laureates goes like she has had a she's a sing, like a very unique singular voice to be added to the annals of people that are that are have been named poet laureates it's like that's like that never would have happened in like the 1800s or the early 1900s or even probably like the middle 1900s um but it's like that's that is such the 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 viewpoint and the point of view and the experiences that she can provide in just the world like the the greater conversation of poetry is it's like it's exciting and I it's as there's a lot of really terrible things that that are happening in the world right now but I feel like there is in the world of poetry, there's a lot of really amazing stuff happening. And at least in that respect, I'm, I'm glad that I'm writing now versus, you know, 40, 30 years ago. Um, but I do wish that the rest of the terrible stuff that was happening in the world was not happening. Right. I heard someone say that... Um with the election a few years ago that now is like the most urgent time to be writing and producing art in America. And I absolutely agree. And I think that it's so easy in this political climate to get really depressed about what's happening. But then just like you said, looking at all the amazing work that's come out of this and that's kind of pushing back against this political climate is also really amazing. So I think it's easy to lose hope, but at the same time, honestly, I believe that literature and art is something that can really save us. Oh, yeah, I, I agree. And I wish, fuck, I wish that more, like, one of the things that I've noticed in, in my sort of in reading about poets from other places in the world, um, like other countries and other cultures and stuff, that usually... Like by and large, poets are like social activists. That that like for for whatever reason, being a poet and being a social activist or like a um, like a rabble rouser or whatever you want to call it, um, feel like they go kind of hand in hand. 
Um, mm-hmm. And I feel like in the United States, there, there are elements of that, but it, it feels like the sort of institution of poetry has been um, like really, has been made uh, sort of like part of the academy and part of like, it's been sort of incorporated into this, this larger machine and rendered, I don't know, like harmless or like a joke. Um, Cause I like, there are poets that I've read and from, you know, like, it's definitely a lot of South American countries and there's some um, Chinese poets that were writing during like the cultural revolution that were like firebrands and they were like, their poetry had teeth and had passion and had like, I don't know. There was, there was a, a force behind it. And I'm not saying that that does not exist in the United States. Um, I think especially within the last, like since Trump got elected, there's been probably an explosion of poetry along those lines. But I don't know, like, if I were just to think of the sort of stereotypical American poetry, it would feel like, um, I don't know, like academic, you know, academic poetry, which in and of itself is not necessarily a bad thing, but it feels like that, you know, it's like, I don't know. It feels like some of the power or some of the wind in poetry sales has been sort of diverted away from what it could be, maybe what it should be. I don't know. Yeah, and I also think that right now, like you mentioned with Trump, it's also a very dangerous time to be a poet and an activist. I mean, even just with him um, wanting to eliminate the National Endowment for the Arts, like there's there's a lot of danger inherent in that. And I also think something that you brought up reminds me of what's been happening with slam poetry, um, that a lot of slam poetry is really politically charged. And yet I haven't, I've seen a lot of controversy around slam poetry. Like people don't consider that to be poetry for whatever reason. Mm-hmm. So I think that we're starting to meet, to see a lot more modes of poetry and a lot more variety, but the poetry that is quite obviously politically charged is not really as accepted as like classical poetry say or just conventional free verse poetry yeah i i i think i would i'm i would agree with that point i'm not super well versed in like the slam or the spoken word poetry scene but i i would agree with the with your point that it it feels like it uh slam or spoken word is more often like socially conscious and socially charged and like taking on issues sort of on like on the the front lines of it but and I also would agree that um, it is seemed as like a lesser thing or like an other thing, which is like I don't I don't understand what the division is. Yeah, I mean I've thought about that too, and I mean there's a certain cadence and a certain rhythm that goes along with slam poetry that you don't see in like just regular conventional free verse, um, and. I think it's also, it's kind of difficult to enter the slam poetry world. I mean, when I was in college, I, I tried to do slam poetry and it was just something that was not familiar with me. I think it just, it, it's different. Um, it's, it's almost like singing. Like you have to have that connection to music and I just didn't have that. Um, and so I think it's just very difficult for people to conceptualize this as this is poetry. Um, I don't know. I just, I wasn't able to necessarily connect with it myself, doing it myself. But when I saw other people perform, I thought it was really incredible. And so I think that we do need to kind of expand our mind to that, that that is a type of poetry. It's not like something that we're used to. 
Um, I just think that it's difficult to pe- for people to connect with something that's not on a page. Like we're not used to seeing people stand up and perform and actually speak their poetry out loud. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that you hit upon a pretty crucial aspect of that, that it, it is a like spoken word and slam poetry feel like they are much more the poem being performed versus like a traditional poetry reading where the poem is more or less just sort of read to people. Um, and yeah, I, I don't, I don't know. I, it's, it's weird that there is that, that sort of division. Um, it's also interesting and it might potentially speak towards that division that like spoken word and slam poetry feels like it is a place for, um, there are a lot like minority voices have a much, uh, uh, sort of uh, are in much more of the spotlight or there's there's much more of the um, there's a like a predominance of, of minority voices in those spaces which is fantastic but might be potentially one of the reasons why it's sort of like edged out in the periphery of like oh that's it's spoken word poetry or it's 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 slam poetry it's not like it's not like poetry that you'd see in the Paris Review or the New Yorker um, despite the fact that poetry started out as an oral tradition, you know, like way, way, way back in the day, that's what it, that's what it was. It was, it was the people, people had to speak it. They had to perform it. Um. Right. Like I, I think there's almost this idea of that's not real poetry. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I don't know. I, I'm, I am, I think, guilty of thinking that for a long, long time. Um, and, I, like, I'm similar with you that, like, I, I, never, I, I never tried to get into spoken word poetry or, or slam um, because I kind of, when I first encountered it, I was like, oh, this is not how I do poetry at all. Um, but I have seen, like, I've seen some really amazing, impactful, powerful performances um, and I, you know, like I've, I've seen people perform their poetry and I've read it on the page and sometimes it translates and other times it's like, you, you can't like whatever, whatever energy or whatever fire they're capturing when they're on stage performing or like orating this thing, like you just, you can't get it when it's in a book. Um, it almost needs to be like a CD, which I feel like, I feel like I've seen some like slam and spoken word poets do. It's like they release EPs or CDs of their stuff instead of a, um, like a book of it which is a really cool thing. Um. And I've also tried, um, like, poets that aren't slam poets, like Sharon Olds, for example. Um, I've tried, I've read several of her books, and I would always try to see if I could find recordings or video footage of her reading, just because I think you you miss the author's voice when you're just reading their words on a page, which I think is why poetry readings are so valuable. Um, because the way that you read words on the page is completely different from the way the author reads them. Um, and I also just feel like you get more of that musical aspect and more of that artistic aspect when you actually see the person performing. Um, so there have been several slam poems that I've seen both in print and I've seen video footage of them. And I will watch the video footage like 20 times. <laughs> I won't go back and read the poem because it just doesn't have the same effect as actually seeing them perform it on stage. Yeah. Yeah. There's a, um, I think that there should probably be a class that's taught, um, of like for poets that write for the page, 
like how to read your stuff in public. Um, Cause I think there, there does need to be a performative element to that. And I think that there's, uh, there've been some poets that I've, I've like Jane Hirschfield can read the hell out of her poetry. Um, but there've been some other poets that I've encountered. I'm like, it's just, it's like, it feels like you're bored up here reading. It's like, I mean, it's great to hear you read your stuff, but like, I don't, if you're bored, I'm going to clock out too. Like I got to have other things I could be doing tonight aside from you reading potentially be just being like, all right, this is a thing. Um, there is a, one of the, one of the things that I keep coming back to when I think about like authors or poets reading their own work, there is a poem, um, have you prayed by Lee Young Lee. Um, I think I've, I've, I'm for sure have mentioned it in other previous podcast episodes, but I want to say it's on, uh, poets.org and there's a, a video or an audio clip of him reading it. And when I, it's one of my favorite poems by him, and I, I read, I encountered it on the page first, and I've read it many more times on the page before I heard him read it. And him reading it radically changed my understanding of how the poem operates. Because when he reads it, each stanza break, each line break, each comma, each, like, each one of those things has a particular beat and a particular weight that he gives it. So it turns a poem that is... I don't know, like a page, maybe a page and a half long, into something that, that it takes him close to, I think, like three minutes to read because every every pause, there's a certain, like, he gives it the count. And it feels like there's a, like, he has established that, like, line breaks get this amount of pause, stanza breaks get this amount of pause, a comma is this amount of breath, a period is this amount, and it's like, hearing him read it, it's, it's, a, it's an experience. And it like it it opened up his poem in a way that had I never heard him read it, I don't think I would have gained. I, w- I don't think I would have ever gained the the sort of the newfound appreciation that I have towards it. Um. <clears throat> I think about Billy Collins, and I've read a lot of his work. I've read some of his books, and I don't particularly find his work that engaging just because it's so simple. But then when I actually see footage of him reading his poetry it's like he can make something simple be so beautiful and right like he'll pause at the end of every line and it's clearly like it has its own flow and he's practiced it and it's just natural to him and so sometimes I find myself like poems that I dislike on the page I actually like when they perform them in person because then the subject matter doesn't really even matter at that point it's the fact that the poet clearly has this connection to their work. Um, and maybe I don't get that from their work on the page, but the fact that they clearly are really devoted to and invested in their work and it means something to them. I don't come away from that that reading or that footage thinking like, that's a great poem or I really like the subject matter, but just having that connection, I think it gives me a lot more respect for their work than I would have otherwise. Hmm. So if you, let's say, let's take Billy Collins for an, for an example. Like if you, if you were to read one of his poems on the page and been like, eh, and then heard him read it and be like, oh, okay, I can see this is, you know, like the, him reading it is, is, a, is a better experience. After that point, would that experience color how you then read that poem when you encounter it on the page? Or did, will it, would it go back to being like, eh, this is still just a meh poem on a page? 
Well, I think once I hear him read it first, when I go back to that poem, as I'm reading the poem, I hear him in my head reading it. Um, so if I didn't hear him in my head, it would still be like, eh, this isn't very good. But whenever I hear a poet actually perform their poetry, it's like you really can't get rid of their voice after that. Like every time you read their poetry on the page, you hear that voice. Um, and so... Yeah, if I if I still read his poetry on the page, like I still probably wouldn't think that it was that great. But having his voice in my head would kind of temper that negative negativity for me. Um, like I'm, I remember one time I read one of his poems that was just something about a dog lying at the front door in his house. And when I read that on the page, I was kind of like, not to be rude, but it was like he spend all this time just on this particular subject and I didn't get that um but then actually hearing a recording of him reading that poem before it was like oh this is just a dog laying in front of a door but after he read the poem it was like okay this is his dog laying in front of his door inside his home and he loves the dog so there was that emotional connection there after I heard him read it I oh that's really that's really interesting so I have I have two follow-up questions um, one, because you didn't get the sense that it was his dog in his home that he loves when you read it on the page, do you think therefore that that poem is, was not as successful as it could have been? That it, it was only upon hearing him read that you got the full sort of like the full conveyance of the experience that he was, well, ostensibly was trying to express and sort of, uh, transfer to you. Um, well, I guess something that I wondered with that poem was, like, something that I bring to a lot of poems is I wonder, like, did this actually happen? Or, you know, is this actually a true story? And so when I was originally reading that poem, it was kind of like, this could be anyone's experience. Like, this could be anyone's dog. This could be anyone's house. This could be anyone's door. Like, this is this is kind of just like a conventional setting. Like tons of people have dogs, tons of people have pets and they have this experience. Like it doesn't really mean anything on its own. Um, but I also find that that's not helpful either. Like I, I catch myself falling into that trap where I wonder, is this poem fictional or is it true? And I remember Nikki Giovanni once said that writers don't write from experience, they write from empathy. And so I think about that when I think about poetry. And for example, when I think about Billy Collins's poem, because it's like that didn't have to necessarily be his dog or his experience. When he was reading that poem, it was clear that he had empathy, even if he didn't have the experience. Hmm. But I kind of try um, to keep in mind that empathy piece. And that's what connects me more with the work than necessarily knowing whether they actually had that experience. Interesting. I, I would say that it's probably more like that that level of so I think that it's it's more important for poets to have a level of like emotional authenticity or emotional authority when they're writing their pieces because of that empathy that like if it didn't happen, which I think is why persona poems are are a thing that can be executed successfully that there's a level of like emotional or intuitive understanding that you have about a like an experience or a thing that you can write about it as if it was a true you know it's like there's a there's a level of like authority and truthfulness that you can give to it 
even if it never happened to you. It's like, um, which might get like I've been thinking a lot about, um, and I don't I don't want to rag on any specific Instagram poet, um, but I've because I'm active on Instagram, um, and because I'm active with like some of the hashtags that I tag things with, I've I've encountered like Instagram poets, um, and I've been trying to figure out like my relationship with that or sort of my understanding with it. Um, and in thinking about like sort of emotionality that I, I feel like if like the poetry that really gets me and hits me hard is stuff that is so specific, not necessarily autobiographical, but just like so specific in its details and its imagery and it's sort of like textures and whatever that it, it cracks into the sort of universal that like it is hitting upon things that I have felt even if I've never like the path that whoever it is that's writing about this thing took is a path that I may have never walked but I've still wound up feeling the things that they have felt about a, like something in my own life um, and I think that there's like that level of of empathy or that level of emotional intelligence or understanding of being able to to present a thing of like this is a thing that I felt and I felt it because of this experience and I know that you felt something similar or akin to this too so like like I'm going to I'm going to draw you into this poem and make you feel this thing and then you're going to fill in the sort of like this is how you got there but it'll be that that sort of connection point between um you know, like bet between you and, and whoever it is that's writing, despite the fact that whatever it is that they're writing about may have never happened to them, like personally, or may not be an auto autobiographical thing. Um. Right. I think that's another hallmark of a good poem for me is when it, it brings up a memory for me. And I think that doesn't always happen with Instagram poetry, not to rag on them either, like you said, but I just you're very limited in what you can write for Instagram. Um, obviously it has to fit in, you know, like a square box. You can't um, involve a lot of language. You're limited in terms of space. And that's something like I mentioned earlier that I also feel with Tumblr that I think sometimes people who post most of their work online really kind of fall into that trap of trying to really make sure that their work is going to connect with other people versus having that happen organically. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I, the, the image that I've sort of developed with Instagram poetry is that it feels like it's very broad and very general, but relatively shallow. Um, and I, I was talking to a, an artist friend of mine about this a couple nights ago, and I, I realized the missing, sort of a missing piece of that is that it's, it feels very expository to me. Like they are the a lot of the poetry that I've that I've come across feels like it's poets that are like telling me what they feel it, which is great you know it's like okay that's cool but it doesn't do anything to sort of engender those like what they felt in me like it doesn't it doesn't ping that sort of empathetic response it's like oh yeah i felt that it's sort of like oh okay cool you feel that way that's great but you know like there's there's not that um I don't know I Mary Oliver is is a is kind of like at the the top of my my poetic pantheon at least right now, um, and I like thinking about like her work versus Instagram poets or a, a lot of it's a number of Instagram poets that I've come across 
there was a level of like Oliver will craft a poem in such a way that like with the images that she uses and like the words and the pacing and the you know like the development of it that like she is describing a thing and it like it 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 lends it ends with her in some emotional space and I'm there with her I feel that thing and I feel like with with the Instagram poetry that I've encountered that doesn't necessarily do that work it is more of a like you know like a friend telling you or like somebody that you that you that you bump into on the streets telling you sort of what's going on in their life you know like oh, okay I can have sympathy for that you know it's like I can I can be outside and sort of you know like you know I'm sorry that that sucks that's shitty um but there's not that sort of like capturing you moment where you you get you feel like you are suddenly in in the in the poem in the feeling like oh shit yeah that's yeah that's how it is maybe that's what it is i haven't really had a whole lot of like oh shit moments when i've when i've read instagram poetry um yeah and i kind of i glaze over them after a while um to me they're kind of just like sound bites like it would be Similar to if you were interviewing someone, you know, for like an hour and you picked out like a minute of what they said, like it, it doesn't convey the full story versus like a full poem from Mary Oliver. That's a full story right there. Yeah, um, that's a wow. It, that's a that's a really good image for that. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I don't I don't think about those Instagram poems after I read them the first time, like with Mary Oliver's poetry, for example, or other poets, I will go back and reread those poems over and over again. But then with these little sound bites, like they just, they never cross my mind again. And yeah. so when poetry crosses my mind more than one time, for me, that's a sign that it, it means something to me. And that's something that I actually connected with emotionally. Yeah. Um, and again, like both of us have said, it's, it's not to rag on Instagram poets, but they're just with that limited space and, you know, a lot of them have just enormous audiences. There's just not that individual connection there. Yeah, I uh, yeah, I I I agree. And I, I like, it feels like a lot of the things that I've read feel like they could be stanzas or like parts of of poems that like, or maybe like the kernel of an idea for a piece that's not really developed. It's like this is that you're giving me sort of like the like the spec script, or like the the sort of. Um, I don't know, like the brainstorm sheet for a poem, um, because like I've I've read short like the poem that you that you had recently published is a relatively short poem, but it does like there's so much work and so much imagery and so much texture and so much like there's stuff that happens in it and you like I feel like I arrived um, where the poem started and where it ended. It definitely like there was a there was distance that was traveled and I was in a very different <laughs> I was in a very different emotional place when I ended the poem than when I started it. Um and even like haiku, like there's so much there's so much crafting and so much work that goes into writing those little like nuggets of poems. But, you know, it's like if you're gonna write something that it, kind of what we were talking about before with with our just in view of poetry in general, like every every line, every moment in here need, there needs to be sort of a purpose or a reason for that. I feel if you're going to write a short, like a really, really short poem, that's only a couple of lines long, that that consideration of everything in here, in here has to be doing a certain amount of work is exponentially more important because you have like, like you have five lines to convey a thing 
that you that you're trying to convey and like every every moment of that of those five lines has to be something that is engaged and on fire and like sparkling otherwise it's like i don't you're not really i don't think you're doing the work that the that it requires you know it's like okay if if you can't if if it's if it's not a thing that you can convey in those five lines that's fine maybe give it 10 maybe give it 14 turn it into a sonnet or something but you know i i i agree that i think that the the format of the format of instagram doesn't necessarily that wouldn't necessarily result in poems that that don't like short poems that don't hit those moments but I think that probably because, like you mentioned, that there's the the readership or the audience is so so vast that there's a like I don't know that like it's maybe I don't want to say more lucrative, but you know it's like it's if you have like a couple like you know twenty thousand people reading your stuff you can maybe kind of make it vague or expository and still ping, you know, connections to a majority of people in that group. Um, I don't know. It reminds me of six word stories. Um, I remember like a few years ago when six word stories were really popular, especially on Tumblr. And I wrote a lot of them myself. Um, because a lot of us were really inspired by Ernest Hemingway. Hemingway's um, six-word story, and I think what was interesting about his story, um, For Sale, Baby Shoes Never Worn, is that it it wasn't relevant to every person. Like, the, it was very relevant to specific people and specific experiences. Um, like, it, it could have been to, you know, people who wanted a child but weren't able to have one, or someone who had a miscarriage, or someone who had an abortion. And those while common experiences are not experiences that are relevant to absolutely everyone. Um, and so I agree that on Instagram, like if you have like a million followers, you're probably trying to create content that is relevant to most of those people, which means that the content is probably going to be pretty vague. Yeah. Um, so I, I, yeah, I think it's really a balancing act. Although like, I think that you may have hit on something really important that, like I, I agree that with Hemingway's story, that it's like it's not it's not a, a thing that is necessarily specifically impactful to everyone, um, because it's like not everyone has had a kid, not everyone has had a kid that you know died or a child that you know like died maybe in childbirth or was a stillbirth, you know whatever whatever the, the context of that that six word story is, but there is a definite like that image. I think can stir a particular, like that image and that emotion that is sort of associated with that, at least on a baseline, I think can, like most people can sort of ping or can find an echo of that. Um, you know, it's like even at, at its base level, the, the like, um, that there is, there is potential that is not realized or there is a hope that was dashed or, um, you know, it's like there, there are these sort of, in a weird way, like universal, but not necessarily generic aspects that like people can, can hit on. And I think, I think that his use of like the image, like, and I, 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 I think potentially one of the, uh, one of the weaknesses of a lot of Instagram poetry that I've read is that it's not, they're not super strong imagers or like super strong metaphors that are being offered. Um, 
because that can do so much work that you don't have to you don't have to explain you don't have to say like oh this is the this is what this means this is what this thing is you can just hit them with an image and then let people sort of interpret that image however they want to interpret the image but it's like if you if you craft it correctly you can at least people get most people in the sort of general bar ballpark of like this is the general feeling that I want you to have and then everyone that winds up in that space is going to be sort of different some other place on the the quadrant of that of that emotion um yeah it it really makes me wonder like all these poets that are famous specifically for Instagram, it would just be really interesting to see if they wrote something that wasn't for Instagram, what that would look like. Because I mm. feel like they're, I feel like they, they're all good poets, but you know, if they wrote something longer or they wrote something where they didn't have like mm. several thousand other people in mind, what that would look like. Um, I, I find that when I write for Tumblr versus when I write, for something that I'm submitting to a journal, the style is completely different. Um, and sometimes that's subconscious and sometimes it's conscious. Like the content that I write for Tumblr, I would never submit to a journal. And the content that I write to submit to journals, I I don't think I would ever post on Tumblr because I just don't think that those two different forms of content would resonate with those two different audiences. So Interesting. that's wow. something that I struggle with a lot as well. Yeah, which is also, I, I think that you had a, a interesting point that, like, the way, like, Tumblr or Instagram poetry, I mean, I know that there have been books that have been published by some, some well-known Instagram poets, but, like, Instagram poetry as a thing might really exist only in the format of Instagram. Like, that might be the appropriate way that it is, like, that's, that's the, like, the publishing model is that it's on Instagram. Um because of like you said like there are certain maybe different criteria or different characteristics or different like different considerations that you would make for a poem that you would post there or a thing that you would post there versus a poem that you would like you would submit or that you would like you know do something else with um hmm. so the the other this is hopping back a little bit but when we were discussing the um like reading hearing a poet read their work and it's sort of like tempering maybe the misgivings or the sort of mehness that you feel about a poem. Has the re has the reverse ever happened for you? Like, has there ever been a poem that you were really gung ho about or like really excited about on the page, and then you heard a poet read it, and you're like, oh fuck, you just ruined this poem for me. Um. You don't have to name any names. I don't. I don't want. I don't want this to be any more of a call out on any, anybody. But just have has that experience ever happened to you before? I, I honestly can't say that that's ever happened before. Like, I've, I don't think I've ever been disappointed when I actually heard someone read their poetry. Um, I mean, I've had experiences where I finally met the author of the poetry and they're not who I thought they were, not in a negative way. Um, but like I was building up this image of them in my head when I was reading their work and then they were completely different from who I thought they were. Um, you know, like, poets who write work and I for whatever reason I think wow this person must be really extroverted and then when I hear them read they're very introverted and they're obviously very quiet and they're very shy and they're really uncomfortable with reading their work so it's definitely happened before that um I've built up these different images of poets in my mind versus 
when I'm reading their work versus when I'm actually hearing them read it. But I don't think I've ever had an experience where I was disappointed when I heard them read their writing. That I that is fantastic. I hope that that is a trend that cont- that continues for a long, long time for you. So yeah. <laughs> um, so this is I'm as as listeners know, there's a list of questions that I send to guests just to kind of get them in the in the mode or mood of, of talking about poetry. But um, I think that this is on. I have them up, but I don't feel like clicking onto the thing. But um, there's a version, there's this question or some version of this question. Um, but it's something that I might start asking. That's a standard thing that I ask all of my, my guests just because I'm, I'm interested in this, but like, why poetry for you? Like, what was the reason that you started writing and why, why do you think that poetry is the, is the uh, medium or the vessel that fits with like, with how you want to express whatever it is you're trying to express? Um, well, I think when I started writing, it was because I had read a poem and I was like, that's really cool that someone did that. I want to try to replicate that. Um, what was the poem? I, I wish I could remember. I honestly can't remember. That would be really interesting. To see if I could find that. Um, but yeah, that was the reason that I originally started writing because I, I just, I thought it was neat. But the longer I started doing it, it was kind of like, this is easier than talking to other people. <laughs> um, when I was mentioning earlier how some poets on the page, they seem very extroverted versus very introverted in person. For me, like I'm, I'm very introverted in person. And so I find it's not difficult to, to talk to other people, but it's very difficult to talk about personal things and personal experiences. And For me, it's also really difficult to understand my own experiences. Like, it's difficult to understand how I'm feeling on any given day. Like, it's just difficult to name those feelings versus when I write them down, I suddenly am able to kind of have that understanding. So I feel like for me, writing has been a way to better understand myself um, and make sense of what I'm feeling and actually name what I'm feeling if I just tried to talk out what I'm feeling, I, I feel like it would just be like a lot of gibberish or just a lot of struggling. Um, so it transitioned from being something where I was just trying to do something that I thought was cool to something where it actually, it benefited me personally. Hmm. So it's so writing for you, if I'm understanding you correctly, is like part of a like a cognitive or emotional process of like, this is, this is how you sort of figure things out in things, figure internal things out for yourself. Exactly. Interesting. Do you, have there been like, do you, do you feel like that, that poetry is, or that, um, I guess the reason that you write or like that, that process of poetry for you, that it, it's a sort of like in figuring things out. It's a, it's a way for you to figure things out internally. Do you feel like that is a, like a monolithic thing or have there been, have there been experiences or times that you've written that feels like it is sort of outside of, of that maybe usual mode of, of writing poetry? Um, that's a, a difficult question. I would say, Going back to kind of the Tumblr versus journal question, um, I've had experiences where I kind of felt like I haven't 
submitted to journals in a while, maybe I should submit something to journals. And so I find myself writing something that I think a journal would specifically like to accept for a publication. And in those specific pieces, I don't really feel that kind of grappling to understand my internal thoughts or my internal feelings. Um, that doesn't happen often, but it is something that I catch myself in. And I've also written poems that are really primarily based around trying to understand my feelings. And those are poems that I, I don't always share on Tumblr and I don't submit. Um, I do have pieces that I never share to anyone else. Mm -hmm. But I would say overall, it, it really is kind of based around that, um, that trying to process what's going on. Interesting. So like, for you, is the, is the process of writing the poem the like, is that is that sort of like, is that the poetry? Is that the poem? And then the what you have left over, like the actual written poem is sort of just like extra at the end of the process? Or do you, when you write through and go through these processes, are you like thinking specifically that like, I'm, I'm writing this thing into a poem and you have that intention to like, this is a thing that's going to be existent in a Word document or existent somewhere that I may or may not share? Um, I would say sometimes I just, I kind of feel like I haven't written poetry in a while. I, I just need to write it. And I don't go into the writing with any specific motivation or idea about what I'm going to write about. Um, and it, it just happens. Something just appears on the page. Um, and when I'm writing, I'm not always like cognizant of I'm writing about a particular subject. Sometimes things just kind of come out and then after they're on the page, I go back and read them and then it's clear to me what I was writing about. Um, so sometimes I go into poetry with a very pointed idea of the subject matter I'm going to cover and who the audience is going to be. And then other times I go into it just thinking like, I, I just have a need to write. Like I just need to put something on the page. It doesn't matter what it is or what it's about. I just need to get something out. And so when I go back and read those poems afterwards, then I have more of an understanding of what I was feeling. Um, so it kind of varies sometimes. It, so in, in those instances where you just feel like you need to write, does it, is it like almost an automatic writing sort of a thing that you're just like, you're not thinking, you're not self-centering. You're just sort of like, you're just in the stream and you're going. Yeah, I would say so. Um, sometimes I do need a little bit of a push. And when I need some push or some inspiration, then I'll read other poets work first. Um, like I read the Adroit Journal pretty frequently. And sometimes if I need ideas, I'll go and read their poetry um, by some of their authors, and then I'll have more ideas to put on the page. Um, but yeah, when I, when I just have this need to write, and it doesn't matter what it is, that's when I feel like I do more of my editing. Because what I put on the page, I don't really understand. Mm -hmm. um, versus when I'm writing with specific ideas in mind, then I kind of just let it, it be. I don't, I go back and reread it once, but I don't go back and like edit it or remove things or add things. Hmm. Interesting. So since you, since you mentioned this, um, who, like, who are you reading right now? Like, who, who are you really jazzed? Like, what, what poets are you really jazzed about right now? Um, there's a poet, I can't really remember what her background is, um, but she's a newer poet, and I found a book of hers at um, a new bookstore 
bookstore down the street from me called Storied Owl Books. Um, I'm not entirely sure how to pronounce her last name, but I think it's Emily Skaja. Um, and so a lot of her work really focuses around kind of like wilderness imagery and animals. Um, she also talks a lot about her intimate relationships um, and her experiences with abusive relationships. So I haven't read her entire book so far, but that was kind of one of those books where I picked it up at the store and it was like, I, I really need to buy this right now. Um, but I think it's also difficult at the same time because I'm a really slow reader. Not, not because I find it difficult to read, but it just takes me so long to process what I'm reading. So when people ask me, what are you reading? <laughs> Sometimes they might ask me at one point and then several months later, they'll ask me and my answer might be, I'm reading the same thing you asked me a few months ago, <laughs> which is kind of, to me, it's a little embarrassing, but it just takes me a long time to digest things. Like, I don't understand how people can read like 20 pages in an hour. For me, I could read like 10 pages in an hour. Um, so... It just, it takes me quite a long time to get through things, especially longer books. Like if it's a poetry book, I can typically sit down and sometimes I can read it in like two days. But if it's a novel or a nonfiction book, sometimes it can actually take me several months, even if it's like 200 pages. That's a, um, so I think that maybe the only value of reading something quickly is just the fact that you can then just read a lot more. But like, I, I, would, I think I would much prefer reading something slowly because it feels like, like you live with it for such a longer, like such, so much more time and you can really almost like savor it, you know? Right. So I, I felt like it's both a blessing and a curse. Um, when it comes to academic settings, like when I was in college, it would take me just forever to read like even just one journal article and that's when it was a curse because it was like I would spend so much time on my reading when all of my friends were like working on their papers or whatever so in that situation it's it hinders me but when I'm just reading for my own enjoyment um I feel like I, I don't forget what I read like I feel like sometimes people read a book and then they forget about it and they move on because I spend months on one particular book for my own enjoyment, I just, it, it resonates with me a lot more deeply. Hmm. I like that. I mean, I can definitely understand how it could be, how it was a pain in college. Um, that sounds like that was, a, it sounds like that was a nightmare, but I'm glad that you're in a space now that you can like, you have the freedom to luxuriate as long as you want or as long as you need to in a, in a book. Yeah, it was interesting when I graduated college, um, everyone would always ask, what's the next thing that you're going to read? And for like a year, for a full year, I didn't, I didn't read any books because I was just so drained from reading textbooks because they took me just so monumentally long to get through that I took a, an entire year off reading. Um, and so it's been two years since I graduated. And in this most recent year, I've only been reading one book so far. Um, but I've been able to digest that book a lot more deeply than I would have if I'd read it in like a month. Yeah. Hmm. 
Well, I'm glad that you. I'm glad that you've uh, returned to being able to read stuff. Um, I like. I feel like I go through cycles. Like there's sometimes that like I I just want to read everything, or I'll reread a bunch of books on my bookshelf, and then other times I'm like, I'm just not feeling it. Um, which is a weird. I feel like a weird position or weird stance to have as a poet, um, because I feel like I do. I do my best work when I'm uh, like digesting and, and engaged with and encountering and digesting like other good, interesting work. Um, but it's sometimes the nice, it is sometimes nice to have a, um, uh, so at least for me, like I, I don't feel like the tendency is as strong now, but definitely when I was an, an early poet, um, I found that whatever I would read, um, I would my voice when I would write after that would be fairly heavily influenced by what I read, um, which produced a lot of like weird like a lot like sort of a, a ton of very disparate um, poetry of mine, and it's nice to have sort of breaks when I'm like I just want to deal with my own voice and my own process and my own shit right now and not not have not be influenced by any, anybody outside. Um, I would notice that too, like when I mentioned earlier that I read the Adroit Journal, that sometimes both consciously and subconsciously, I would pull in some of those motifs from the poems I was reading into my own work. Um, like if I was noticing that a lot of people were using like fruit imagery, I would find myself using fruit imagery in my work, um, which I think can be helpful to a certain extent that you incorporate unique ideas into your work but at the same time i would come away with work that wasn't 100 percent mine mm -hmm. um so I, I don't know i feel like sometimes i kind of rely on reading other people's poetry as a crutch for my own work and i'm trying to kind of back away from that mm -hmm. and i've noticed that it's difficult to just write a poem without reading anything first but i'm kind of trying to push that more good luck with that I, I, I seriously, in all sincerity, that like, that's, that's tough to, to like, cause I, I don't know if, if, the, if you've had this experience, but there's sometimes that like, if I'm, if I'm left to my own devices and I write, like there's like you, like you said, you don't have that crutch. You don't have the, like, Oh, I can, I could use this imagery or I could use this line or not, maybe not line, but I could use like an image or I could use sort of a theme from somebody else. It's like, you just left, it's just you. And, you know, like if the poem doesn't work or if the entire writing process, like the, whatever session you sit down to write or whatever doesn't pan out, you're like, oh, it's just me. And that level of like, oh, fuck, you know, now I have to deal with my own deficiencies or deal with my own, like my own crap now that um, like there's like there's nobody that you can sort of hide or like camouflage yourself back into. It's just like, oh, yeah, it's just me in the page right now. And whatever I put on the page is me. Yeah, it can be really daunting, um, but I think it's good that we recognize that that's something that we do sometimes. Um, it's just, it, it is hard to steer away from that. Like, I don't know why I have this idea that I just, I can't come up with ideas on my own or I need something to jumpstart me because I, I know that I can. Um, and I don't know, maybe that's part of the fact that just poetry is so readily accessible now just on the internet like I don't have to 
do the work of walking to the library and checking out a book to get inspiration. I can just in a few seconds, look it up online and just right there. I don't know if that's part of it, but um, yeah, that's something that I'm just really trying to work on lately. Hmm. Um, so I feel like we're probably approaching the, the end of our recording. Um, so as is customary, I have two final questions for you. Uh, the first one being, if you have the vocabulary to describe it, what is your internal landscape like? Uh, that's a good question. Um, it's pretty hard to describe. Um, honestly, there's this lake in Australia that I really like. It's just called the Pink Lake. Um, it's just a huge lake that's like bright pink. Um, so I would just say like a body of water that's really calm and peaceful. Um, I don't know. I just feel like with my internal landscape and my thought processes, like I mentioned earlier, it's really hard to distinguish what I'm feeling and to name what I'm feeling. Um, so I'm also really introverted. So I just feel like any sort of landscape that doesn't involve other people or that's pretty you know, out of civilized life, for example, like a forest, I would say a forest where like, there's no one around for several miles. I would say that that's my internal landscape. Is there like, would it be, do you think that it would be a, like a forest and then at some, somewhere in the forest, there is this like secluded lake that's just there? Yeah, that sounds about right. And not that I would be entirely cut off from civilization, but like if there were a village within several miles and I could kind of go back and forth between the village and the forest and recharge, that would be ideal. Hmm. So would the village in, in this, I guess, sort of internal picture, would the village be like access to the like the world outside of yourself, like a, like a doorway or whatever, or I guess maybe sort of stand into the world that's outside of yourself? Yeah, it would be access to other people, um, other interactions, and then the forest and the lake would be my time where I spend with myself, um, the time where I write, where I kind of try to process things internally. Um, and then the village or whatever you might call it would be that space where I'm interacting with people again. Um, but it wouldn't be something that I would do frequently. I just, I feel like I need a lot of time to recharge and in real life, you're not always given that time or you're kind of, I don't know, you always have to run around with so many different engagements and you have so much networking and um, socialization that it would be nice if in this internal landscape, I could really kind of choose how to balance my time. Hmm. So do you, do you feel like that, like it is your internal landscape, a fi as a fixture of the internal landscape, there is definitely like a you, like you are actually walking through the forest and hanging out by this lake, or is it just the landscape itself is this thing that's inside of you? I would say the second option. Honestly, I, I didn't really picture myself being in the landscape. I kind of picture the landscape being in me, if that makes sense. Okay. Yeah. Hmm. That, that's really interesting. I, I don't think anybody that I've asked has ever had a sort of like porthole to the outside world as an aspect of their internal landscape. That's, re that's really interesting. 
Well, it's a, it's a hard question. Like, I, I didn't know what to say. I think that's a really fascinating question, so I'm glad that you ask it of everyone. Thank you. It actually, it came up, and I've, those of you who listen to this podcast, I, you, I have heard this story before, but it, it came up, um, there was a guest, uh, Shreya Harris and I were talking, and I don't know how we started talking about this, but um, I, I told her what, I think I told her what mine was, and then she was talking about how hers was... Um, like an alien planet that was populated by a couple of different, like a handful of different people. And I was like, wait, there are people in your landscape that aren't you? Like, you have to walk me through this. And then she told me like the, the sort of, if I'm remembering this correctly, that like the different voices that she feels that sort of exist in her work, um, those like those voices are part or uh, belong to like different sort of, people that that exist in this landscape and i was like this is a wild wild concept i have to ask everybody else that i talk to what their internal landscape is like and it's been it's been really interesting that like nobody's is the same i mean i kind of figured that that was going to be that would be the case but there have been some people that are like there's one friend of mine that said that hers was like a big swirl of i think it was like red and purple um like fluffy frosting that's what she felt like. That's what she felt her internal landscape was. And I was like, I, I don't know what that means, but I'm with you and I get it. And somebody else was like the inside of a geode in like in the earth. And I was yeah. Like, okay. That's, oh, yeah, that's sure. And then um, one of my old teachers was um, a, I think it was like a, I don't remember if it was New Mexico or Arizona. I think it was New Mexico. It was like a New Mexico sky with the, the mountains sort of like, low in the frame like a bird and a cloud shaped like a dog and i was like yeah that okay that makes 100 percent sense coming from you sure i'm with it um but it's it, oh sorry go ahead yeah i was just gonna say that i i think there's value in kind of catching people off guard because i remembered that you had sent me that list of questions but i had forgotten about it since we rescheduled and so I didn't even think that this question might be coming. And if I prepared for it, I feel like my prepared answer would have been a lot different than the off guard one. Really? That's interesting. What do you, do you have a sense of what you think your prepared answer might've been? Um, not really. I just feel like it would have been more detailed. Um, yeah. Also when you said landscape, when I was kind of caught off guard, I immediately thought of nature. And so I feel like maybe if I had, digested on what I was going to say for a while um I might not have gone with something that was so connected to nature like you mentioned someone talked about frosting the fact that, like I could come up with a landscape that's not you know like organic it's man-made it's not part of nature that's something I didn't think about but I I mean I I, I kind of agree with the the catching people off guard because I, I feel like I mean, I, I, I tend to, pre I, when I send out the list, I tend to say, like, I, this is a question I will for sure ask. Um, but I, there is a, um, there's a level of, like, I feel like on-the-spot honesty when someone's like, oh, shit, I have to, like, or like, oh, I've been thinking about this. When I first encountered this, like, I had no, I, I still don't, you know, I still don't know what it's going to be. It's, it's, always, it's always a really interesting experience, sort of, like, walk like having people walk me through the process of why they landed on whatever it is that they landed on but i think it's interesting to me that that your gut reaction was like a lake in a forest 
and the fact as we were chatting before the the recording started it's like you volunteer at a at a what an arboretum as for an uh, arborist yeah yeah um so it's like i that to me it's like you're obviously out sort of maybe not necessarily in like nature capital in nature but it's like you're out sort of spending time with the natural world on a, on a daily basis yeah so I, I didn't even think about that that there was that connection there because i i do volunteer very frequently and i used to be a groundskeeper for several years and so i just i wonder if that kind of influenced me subconsciously and i didn't even know it that's wow that's so that's wonderful i'm i'm so glad i'm so glad that i this question is is a thing because um, it's also it also like for the people that I've I've known for a while that I've had on the podcast when I ask them this question, there's a certain like like my it'd be like if you had um, you wear glasses correct yeah um, have you ever had like super super smudgy glasses and then you clean them and you're like oh shit I could have been seeing things like all this week yes many times. Um, I feel like when I, if it's people that I've known for a while and I ask them this question and they give me their answer, I, I feel like more often than not, it has been as if someone has like glasses cleaned my view of them. And so like my picture, my understanding of them becomes a, just like a little bit more crisper. I'm like, oh, okay, that makes, that makes total sense. And I, I think I don't, I don't want to put like too much weight on on the internal landscape but it, at least in my own life in my own experience like i can see so many things in my life feel like they are a di- almost a direct manifestation of what i feel my internal landscape is um so for me it is a it is sort of a massive um it's the sort of like image that i've i've based or i've sort of built my current view of myself on um, so in that regard, it, it, it takes a very important sort of central role in my life. Um, and I know for other people, it may not, or it probably doesn't, but there is always a level of like, oh, okay, that makes, that makes a lot of sense having known you for like five years and you telling me this, like my friend with the insides, that's uh, a big swirl of, of, uh, like thick puffy frosting. Like, yeah, that makes a hundred percent sense that that's your internal landscape because and kind of going back to what we were talking about with like poetry and things like images are not necessarily knowing what someone means, but knowing that whatever image or whatever thing that they're, they're using as a descriptor or an image is correct and makes sense is like, and that's the, that's the proper way that this needs to be described. Like that to me for her was 100% the case. And I feel like more often the case, um, or has been most often the case when I ask people this question of like, Oh, okay. Yeah. That's, that feels like that's the proper response for, for what I know of you. Um, but that's cool. That's, that's really, it's interesting. Um, I'm, I'm curious, like probably this won't be on a podcast, um, or like, I won't be part of this, but I'm like, I'm curious if you sit on this question for like a week or so. And I, I reach out to you again, if it'll, if it'll still be the answer that you gave or if it will have like changed or, um, developed at all. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I feel like I, I, like I mentioned, I would want to make it more detailed. Um, like, I feel like I would probably keep the forest and the lake and the village, but I'd probably add in a lot more detail. <laughs> I also feel like this is a question that I would probably ask other people. Um, like when I'm thinking about job interviews, like <laughs> no, 
no one ever asked a question like this. And I feel like that would be interesting because like you said, it really does give you a much broader perspective on what people are really like. Yeah. Um, or, at, or at the very least, like how, how they view themselves, which is a, like in and of itself, a, a kind of an, an interesting and potentially important, you know, a, a bit of information to have. Right. Exactly. Hmm. So the, um, I'm, I'm glad I asked this. I'm, I'm glad I asked specifically you this. This has been a really, uh, really fruitful conversation. Um, but my, my, the second and last com- or question that I have for you is, is there any question that you have for me? I guess I would be interested in what drove you to actually create this podcast in the first place. Um, so the, the major sort of singular driving impetus for it was um, I was maybe a year out of, no, maybe a year or two, year and a half out of grad school and was feeling the sort of deficit of um, like in-depth conversations about like poetry or arts or literature or, you know, like when you start having those conversations, the sort of tangents and the things that, that come up in the periphery of those conversations, um, I had those all the time when I was in, when I was working through my MFA program and when I graduated and when people, you know, inevitably it's like they have their lives, they have their jobs. They're not forced to be in the same room with like 20 other people for, you know, like five hours every week. Um, I was like, Oh, it's really difficult to have these types of conversations with people when we're not sort of forced to be in the same space as each other. Um, and I, didn't like that. I, I felt like I was, I was, there was a, um, an element of my life that I had grown to really cherish and enjoy that was not there anymore. So I was trying to figure out a way that I could, I could put myself in a position where I could talk to people sort of in-depthly or tangentially about poetry. Um, cause there was a lot of people that I knew that I had never gotten a chance to have this type of conversation with. And there was a lot of people that I, I'm, I knew of and um, was not necessarily friends or acquaintances with, but just sort of people I had engaged or encountered like you, uh, for instance, I was like, they would probably be really cool to talk with. Um, So that was, that was, I I was thinking what, what would be a way that I could, I could have these conversations on a a fairly regular basis. And the, uh, the best solution that I came up with was a, a fairly loose conversation uh, podcast on just on poetry. And I was like, okay, I'll see how this goes. And I, I think for my first guest, I interviewed one of my, uh, my close friends in Baltimore. Um, and then my second guest was another close friend in Baltimore. And I'm like, okay, I think I can do this. And then it started, like I started working through my friends and then sort of started widening the circles of people that I didn't know or didn't know super well. Um, but yeah, it was really, it was really, uh, this podcast was grew out of a desire to talk to people uh, in depthly about stuff uh, because I was not having I was not being afforded opportunities to do that um, in my sort of ambient life. Well, I'm glad you created it because to be honest, I I've never really listened to a podcast before, and so like going through the process of actually being interviewed for one is maybe interested in listening in the horse. Oh, that's awesome. Um, um, there are, there are a couple that I could, I could suggest to you if you're looking for recommendations. Um, but that's something we can do like off, off, uh, off mic. Um, but yeah, there's, um, 
I, I work at a, a cabinet shop and we have NPR on all day. Um, and I don't know, I don't know what time this is for other people in, in the U S um, uh, but th- the three o'clock hour for us is fresh air, which is a, um, do you know, do you know NPR fresh air, uh, world? Just, just a little bit. Yeah. Okay. It is a, um, is it essentially like an interview, um, radio show hosted by Terry Gross, who's been doing it for decades. I think she got her start in like the eighties. Um, but she just like, she talks with people. She talks with like scientists and authors and journalists and like directors and movie, like actors and just a whole, whole range and hosts of, of people. And, um, I, I began to get, like, I really enjoy listening to, to what she does. And I was beginning to get kind of envious of the fact that it's like, she gets to talk to really interesting people sometimes on like multiple times. I was like, fuck, I really want to do that. I want to, I mean, not, not potentially to the caliber of the level that she does, but just to like, just to talk with people. Cause I, I, similarly to the, what, what someone's internal landscape can sort of reveal about them. I've, I found at least in my own experience that when you talk to people, like how people dis, how people choose or maybe unconsciously describe a thing or the things that they, they tend to focus on or how they talk about stuff, I feel like can, can reveal and can say a lot about them. Um, it's like I've, I've, you know, having conversations with poets that have nothing to do with poetry, but I feel like I came away having a better sense of who they are as a poet because of the things that they noticed and how they described it and like just working through the process of this is how I think about this thing and this is how it, you know, like this is how I'm linking this thought to this thought to this thought. Um, and I think there's something, at least for me, there's something valuable in that. And I, I, um, I, part of one of the other reasons, um, sort of the, the driving impetus was that I feel like there was value. Like if other people happened to overhear the conversations that I had in, in grad school, I imagine that some probably would think that they were insufferable, but I think that other people would probably find it pretty edifying or at least entertaining that, you know, like, or just, um, offering or providing a a wider view of opinions or viewpoints or just experiences or whatever. Um, and I think there's something, I think there's something intrinsically and inherently valuable in that of just, you know, having the opportunity to, to talk with someone that you don't necessarily know a whole lot about to just to get us, you know, just to talk about things. Um, and then for other people listening to that conversation of just, you know, like there's a there's a, a widening uh, circle or a widening awareness and appreciation of, of viewpoints and experiences and, and the ways that people think and the ways that people are, um, which has been another really amazing thing of, of just the the scope and the breadth of talking with people and talking with poets and like none of their voices are the same. None of, none of their, none of the ways that they are, or the ways that they see are the same. And I think that that's a really kind of like what we were talking about earlier, that like, uh, the poetry nowadays feels like there's so much more space for a wider variety of voices. Um, and just talking to people and realize it's like everyone's voice is unique and that's fantastic. And there's, there should be enough space for everyone and all those voices to, to do, you know, to express what they want to express, um, within the arts, which is a, you know, it's like a, it's an, it's a neat thing to at least be in my own small way, sort of a facilitator of that. Um, 
Well, I think just like you mentioned that you're learning so much about other people. I feel like the people you're interviewing are also learning a lot about themselves. Um, I noticed that a lot of the questions you were asking me until I actually said the answer, I didn't even realize that that was my answer. That's how I actually thought. So even just getting people to verbalize how they're feeling and verbalizing those answers can, I think, teach them a lot about themselves as well. I hope so. Yeah, that's, thank you. That's, that's a, that's an aspect that I, I think I may have known intuitively, but not necessarily consciously, consciously. Um, but yeah, that's, yeah, that, that is, I think, I mean, I've had that experience myself numerous times of like talking with someone and having to sort of piece my thoughts together and suddenly being like, oh, okay, this is actually what I think about this thing that I, I didn't realize that, you know, five minutes ago that this is how I felt on a thing. Um, it's actually, I mean, I've been sort of developing some of these thoughts, um, but uh, some friends and I were talking about like cultural appropriation um, recently, and there were some things that that in the in over the course of the conversation was like, oh, I didn't realize that I felt this actually this particular way about this particular subject, or I didn't like. There's an image that sort of crystallized in my head that, that from that point on, from now on, will be sort of the touchstone image that I use in des- in describing this thing, or sort of understanding it for myself. And yeah, those are those are neat and I think valuable experiences for people that are uh, have the awareness of the uh, you know. Uh, I don't know, emotional intelligence connection with themselves to, to sort of be able to like extract those things for themselves too. Right. Exactly. I 100% agree. Well, cool. This has been, this has been a really, really wonderful way to spend, <laughs> to spend a, a Sunday night. Yeah. Thank you so much for this opportunity. I, I was really excited about it. Um, I didn't know what it was going to be like because like I said, I've never, really listened to a podcast or been interviewed for one before, but this was really illuminating. Um, and it was really great to actually kind of meet you and hear your perspective. So I appreciate it. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. I mean, I'm, like I said, you've, you've been very, very close to the top of my list of someone that I've wanted to talk to for a while. And I'm, I'm really glad that we finally got a chance to, to do this. Um, and yeah, thank you in general. Just thank you so much for spending like two hours, two hours on a Sunday night talking poetry with me. Yeah, um, thank you so much. Yeah. Um, is there any any final words you'd like to leave the the listeners or any final thoughts? Um, just I guess to whoever is listening to this podcast, um, if you're someone who hasn't gotten into poetry yet and you're thinking about doing so, um, there's really no downside of writing. Um, if you're worried that you're not going to be good at it, um, like we've talked about throughout this podcast, there's so many different voices, there's so many different experiences. So if this is something that you've kind of been thinking about when you haven't taken that leap yet. I would just really encourage all of you to do so and kind of start that process. You heard it here, folks. Take that leap. Um, thank you so much for listening and I will talk to y'all next time.